Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, and welcome back to episode five of the CCRN podcast. For those of you that are coming back and have uh, listened to other podcasts, thank you so much for coming back uh, for another episode. And for those of you that are new, welcome. I appreciate you listening in. In episode four, if you'll remember, we discussed the cardiac conduction system and then we took some time and we took a walk through basic dysrhythmia. So we did a review on that. I thought it was most appropriate then to follow up that episode with the drugs that we use to treat the arrhythmias that we encounter in critical care. So that's why this podcast number five has to do with antiarrhythmic drug therapy. So when you look at the antiarrhythmic drug family, it's really broken down into classes. We have class one through class four, and then another classification just called other. And in that classification, we find drugs like adenosine and digitalis. So it's my intention in this episode to go through it by classes and to talk about the different antiarrhythmic drugs that fall within a given class. So that's the way that we're going to go about doing this. So let's start out with one confusing term that seems to throw people for a loop when they look up an antiarrhythmic drug in a nursing drug handbook, for example. And that is the term action potential. When you read about an antiarrhythmic, almost invariably, they will mention whether this antiarrhythmic drug prolongs action potential duration. So whether it lengthens it or whether it shortens it. And that's very unhelpful information unless you know what action potential is. And really, it's not a very complicated term at all, guys. When you think about action potential, I just want you to think about one trip through the conduction system. So if you were like on this trip, you know, and you uh, went across the P and then the PR segment to the QRS and then the ST and T, that was your trip. One trip through the conduction system is one action potential. So the take-home point here is whenever you encounter an antiarrhythmic drug that says that this drug prolongs action potential duration, you know that this drug class will prolong intervals. 
And so the intervention on your part, of course, is to make sure that you take out your calipers and that you are monitoring the PRs, the QRSs, and the QTs. Of course, with the QRSs and the QTs being the most important intervals that are affected by prolongation. So an example might be amiodarone. We give amiodarone a lot, it seems. And when you read about it, it's a class three, and all class threes prolong action potential duration. So that calls upon you to haul out your calipers and make sure that you trend the QRS and QT interval. Now let's just take a moment and go over this QRS and QT interval. The QRS is pretty self-explanatory, right? We know that the normal QRS is less than 0.12. It's the QT that sometimes can throw you for a loop because the QT interval is um, affected by the patient's heart rate. So what we see is that the faster the patient goes, the faster the heart rate is, the shorter the QT. The slower the patient goes, the lower the heart rate is, the longer the QT interval. So that's why when we measure a QT, we need to use the QT corrected, the QT subscript C. That is the most accurate because the QTC gives us the actual QT that is corrected, if you will, and that's what the little C stands for. It's corrected for the patient's heart rate. And that's really what we should be monitoring for is looking at the trend of the QTC. So if, for example, you are starting a patient on an antiarrhythmic drug that is a known QTC prolonger, let's just say we're doing a sodalol or a ticosin load, it's going to be extremely important for us to get a baseline QTC prior to a dose and within uh, two hours, actually at the two hour point after a dose and closely monitoring that trend of the QTC. In fact, it's so important that when you think about drugs like Tikasin and Sotolol, which are, are both class threes, um, patients can't even be prescribed these drugs and sent home from the doctor's office. They need to be hospitalized in a monitored bed unit in order to be able to be loaded with these drugs and the QTC be closely monitored. So when you're caring for a patient like this, you typically have a parameter, a call parameter. If QTC greater than X, maybe X is 0.48 or 0.50, which is 480 to 500 milliseconds, you know, you need to call the physician, you need to call the cardiologist. Um, because we know that there's a price to pay when the QT interval is prolonged, and that is the risk of uh, torsad, VTAC, VFib, lethal dysrhythmias. And so <clears throat> that is why the patient is hospitalized, because it's most likely to occur within that first 24-hour period. So usually a sotolol load is usually an admission for at least 24 hours. So 
Now, let's get into talking about the classes. I skipped ahead just a little bit and I mentioned some class three agents simply to explain the importance of measuring the QTC. So now let's just backtrack and go through each one of the classes. The first class of antiarrhythmic agents are known as the class ones. That makes good sense, right? And they are sodium channel blockers. And really, when you think about sodium going into a cell, a heart cell, of course, in this example, when sodium goes into the cell, it creates an, ex uh, an environment of excitability. And you have to have that. Excitability of a heart cell is a good thing. If a heart cell doesn't have excitability, we have a special name for that, do we not? It's called asystole. Just like when we have no excitability of brain cells, we have a special name for that as well. And we say that somebody has uh, brain death. So again, excitability is important. However, sometimes when we're talking about arrhythmias, they're originating because of hyperexcitability, in which case we need to have a, a, an agent, such as an example would be our class ones that decrease sodium influx into the heart cell and brain cells and other cells for that matter, but we're really focusing on the heart cell here thereby reducing excitability. Now, when they got all the class ones together and they were all sodium channel blockers and they took a look at them, one of the things that they noticed is that even though they all fell under that heading sodium channel blocker, there really were some differences among some of the drugs as to their effect on action potential duration. Now remember, that's the trip through the conduction system, thereby widening intervals, for example. So what they had to do is they had to take these class 1s and they had to break them down into class 1A, 1B, and 1C. And that's what we're going to be going over here. And it really, once again, is based on action potential duration and the effect that the drugs have on action potential duration. So they had to break, break them up into kind of subcategories, if you will. So the first class, class 1A, really some old drugs listed here. We have quinidine, procanamide, and disopyramide, which is also known as Norpace. This whole classification, class 1A, prolongs total action potential duration and repolarization. And so therefore, you know, just by learning that or reviewing that, that you have to get out your calipers and monitor for prolongation of the QRS and QT interval. The only one of those three drugs that you may find still listed in potential drugs used in the ACLS manual is procanamide. And when you look at the administration guideline for procanamide, you'll see it shine through very clearly that as you administer the initial bolus of this drug and then it's followed by a drip, the guideline says to administer the initial bolus slowly all the while watching and monitoring the width of the QRS complex. In fact, if the QRS complex 
widens out by greater than 50% of its original wits, we need to stop the drug. Because think about this for a second. If you take a, a QRS complex and you pull it on either side, uh, you get flatline as a result of that. So when the QRS widens out, ultimately that could lead to asystole. So with these uh, QRS and QT prolongers, we really need to be on top of our game in monitoring that. Next, we have the class 1B antiarrhythmics. And while there are similarities in that both the class 1As and 1B suppress sodium influx, thereby um, decreasing excitability, and both 1A and 1B can be used for ventricular arrhythmias, there is a definite difference between the two. The class 1B antiarrhythmics do not um, prolong repolarization or action potential duration. In fact, the class 1Bs shorten it. So it really doesn't call on us like the class 1As did to haul out our calipers and, and measure QRSs and QT intervals. But with this drug class, the class 1Bs, we see the sodium inhibition affecting the central nervous system. And case in point here is kind of the star of the class 1Bs that we find in the ACLS manual, and that is lidocaine. Lidocaine does have an effect on the central nervous system, and we see it or can see it if we administer the drug too rapidly or if the patient becomes... Uh, toxic on lidocaine. When you look at the administration guidelines, lidocaine is given slowly and all the while we are asking the person whether or not they feel any numbness or tingling around their lips, any ringing in their ears. We're asking about paresthesias. If they experience that, they're showing an intolerance to the drug. And so this is probably not the antiarrhythmic of choice for this particular person. Now, when we talk about um, lidocaine, according to the ACLS guidelines, we know that the initial bolus is one milligram per kilogram, and that's pushed in at a rate of 25 to 50 milligrams per minute. And then it needs to be followed immediately by an infusion. And what is the rule of thumb with ACLS? Whatever antiarrhythmic it was that helped to get the patient out of the rhythm, if you're going to hang a drip, that would probably be your best bet as the drip that you're going to hang afterward. So once we hang the drip, that's going to be going at a dosage at one, of one to four milligrams per minute. And... Again, it's primarily used for management of ventricular arrhythmias, especially in somebody that has a known uh, prolonged QRS or QT interval because it doesn't have an impact on action potential duration. The key thing again is, is that after the bolus, the drip needs to be started or the drug is already going to be working its way out of the system so that 30 minutes later, if you haven't started the drip yet, you'll have to rebolus the patient with half the original dose in order to be able to start the drip and, and get the effectiveness that you're looking for. The last class one is class C. 
And the class C's have varying effects on action potential duration. So you see class 1A, prolonged action potential duration. Class B, shortened it. Now class 1C has varying effects on action potential duration. And so that may lead to a proarrhythmogenic situation. So it can cause arrhythmias that worse than the ones that it's intended to treat. So that's why the class 1Cs are not typically the antiarrhythmics that are used initially. So this is where we have drugs like flecainide and also propafenone. And the um, trade name for prep, uh, propafenone is Rhythmol. And so, again, um, you in, in these cases, you want to monitor also for QRS prolongation and QT prolongation because there, there is the possibility of that happening. So that's it for the class 1s. The class 2s are the beta blockers. And the beta blockers, we know them when we look at the generic name, and their generic name ends in alol, O-L-O-L. And while the beta blockers have a lot of different uses, one is uh, as an antiarrhythmic. And what the entire drug class does is it really um, decreases the effect of catecholamines. It blocks catecholamines. And so that's why sometimes people that are afraid of public speaking, but they want to get up and, and present their research at a nursing conference, sometimes will take a one-time dose of a beta blocker to prevent that tachycardia associated with the catecholamine surge um, from being afraid. So the alols, the beta blockers, are catecholamine blockers. They inhibit sympathetic activity. So um, this is where we have, in terms of antiarrhythmics that we use, metoprolol is sometimes used as it, uh, or for its antiarrhythmic properties, and also esmolol. And we know that metoprolol can be given either IV or PO. Esmolol can be given as an IV infusion. And we know that to be Brevablock is its other um, name. In terms of its uses, esmolol or Brevablock is used for SVT, supraventricular tachycardia. And it also can be used... And most often intra-op or post-op for patients with hypertension. So just a couple of uses there for Brevablock. And being a beta blocker, you know that not only is it going to have an impact on overall heart rate, but it's also going to have vasodilating properties, thus its use as an antihypertensive. And so by dilating, we need to not only monitor the patient's heart rate very closely, but also the patient's blood pressure very closely. Next, we have the class 3s. The class 3 antiarrhythmic agents are the potassium channel blockers, and every last one of them increased duration of the action potential. So again, that's calling on us to monitor QRS and QT intervals closely and watch the trend 
because QRS and QT, particularly QT now, is a trending measure. So another um, thing that's specific to the class threes is that they antagonize endogenous catecholamines, which translated into English means that when anything antagonizes endogenous catecholamines, you run the risk of having hypotension. And so in about 12 to 13% of patients that receive, let's say, amiodarone, given that that's a kind of one of the stars of the class three agents, about 12 to 13% of people that get the initial bolus of amiodarone will have some hypotension associated with that. So really important to be aware that there is that potential. So we know that amiodarone is used for a wide variety of both supraventricular as well as ventricular arrhythmias. Now, there are other antiarrhythmics in that family. So we have amiodarone, we have sodalol, which uh, the trade name is beta-pace. We have ibutylide, which uh, has as its other name covert, and then uh, we have dofetilide, who has as its other name ticacin. All of them class three, all of them having similar properties. However, um, both sodalol and dofetilide have the property of prolonging the QT interval more than the others do. So much so that if a patient is going to be put on sodalol or dofetilide, they have to be hospitalized for their loading doses so that we can closely monitor their QRS and QT. So again, the class three properties are the prolonged QRS and QT. They block sodium, excuse me, they block potassium by blocking potassium and keeping potassium inside that cell, we can decrease irritability. They antagonize endogenous catecholamines. And so you may see a little dip in the patient's blood pressure. Of course, the star there is amiodarone. And we know that amiodarone prolongs atrial and ventricular repolarization as well as action potential. And it's used in the treatment of pulseless VTAC and VFib in a code. It can be used as a treatment uh, for rate control in atrial fibrillation or flutter when other therapies don't work. Typically, the first thing out of our toolbox with uncontrolled atrial fib is cardizem. If we don't get the bang for the buck that we're looking for out of cardizem, then we turn over to uh, amiodarone and try it. So when we talk about the standard dosing, well, the standard dosing is going to be uh, different in a code situation than in a maintenance situation. Usually in critical care, when we're talking about maintaining somebody on uh, amiodarone, they get one milligram per minute over six hours after the initial bolus. And then half of that are 0.5 milligrams per minute over 18 hours. And if we get effectiveness out of it, if we get the bang for the buck that we're looking for, 
we need to get the PO preparation started before we turn off the drip, of course. We have class four coming up next, and the class four antiarrhythmic agents are the calcium channel blockers. And this really calls on us to kind of break apart the calcium channel blockers into subclasses because there are only a, a few drugs that are under that calcium channel blocking family that really do have an impact on the patient's heart rate. And they're called non-dihydropyridines. So let me just back up and say that when you talk about calcium channel blockers, they're broken down into two subsets. We have the, the um, dihydropyridines and the way that you know them, guys, because dihydropyridine, man, that is a mouthful. So the way that you know if a calcium channel blocker is a dihydropyridine is you look at its generic name. And if its generic name ends in pine, P-I-N-E, you know it's a dihydropyridine. And the reason why you even care whether it's a dihydropyridine or not is because if you are giving a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, it is not going to affect your patient's heart rate. So for example, I was asked by one of the uh, nurses on a step-down unit, Kay, I'm, I'm kind of concerned here because my patient has a resting heart rate of about 50 and they are due for their morning amlodipine. Should I give it? Well, what do you think I told her? I told her we discussed calcium channel blockers and we discussed dihydropyridines. And the bottom line is amlodipine is a dihydropyridine and therefore will not affect heart rate. The patient definitely needed it for their blood pressure though. And uh, so um, I obviously told her to, to give the drug. So the dihydropyridines do not affect heart rate. So if I'm giving a calcium channel blocker and it does not end in peen, it's generic name now is what I'm talking about. If it doesn't end in peen, then I know it's going to pretty predictably have a effect of about eight to 12 heartbeats per minute uh, effect on my patient. So that's where with the class fours, we see things like cardizem and verapamil. And interestingly enough, looking historically, uh, all we had to work with to start out with was verapamil or Kalan. And I tell you what, verapamil was very poorly tolerated by elderly patients with heart failure. We saw it again and again and again, where they would really tank their blood pressure when given verapamil. So it was really nice when cardizem came on the scene or dilt, diltiazem, because it seems to be a little bit friendlier in terms of um, elderly patients with heart failure are able to tolerate it better, it seems. You don't have as dramatic of a drop in blood pressure. Again, this is just uh, an observation on my part. So the non-dihydropyridines are the class four antiarrhythmics. They will depress automaticity in the sinus and AV node and um, decrease the, the movement through the AV node and down to the um, 
to the ventricles by prolonging that refractory time in the AV node. And that's why the class fours are used for rate control, ventricular rate control in patients that have atrial fibrillation. So all in all, what we're looking at here is a drug class that is used for rate control, ventricular rate control in atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation. It also can be used for reentrant rhythms, which we're going to discuss a little bit more when we get into talking about adenosine. So this is our class one through class four antiarrhythmic group. And the next grouping actually is considered other. And this is where we have drugs such as adenosine and digitalis. You can best bet that there will be a test question on adenosine for sure. And so we know that adenosine, it has to be given very rapidly, followed by a rapid push, a rapid flush. Because if we don't do that, the half-life of this drug is a matter of seconds and it will be gone and ineffective for our patient. So let's get into adenosine first. Its primary effect is to slow conduction through the AV node. And the only type of arrhythmia that it can really terminate, actually convert, is an arrhythmia that sets up what's called an AV nodal reentrant circuit. And the best way to explain that is just to envision the heart and think about impulses spreading from the atria down into the AV node. And the impulses spread uniformly down the AV node. If for whatever reason, the impulses meet up with tissue that is not able to take on an impulse at that time, maybe there's a, just a small little bit of tissue in the AV node that has undergone age-related calcification. Maybe it's an acid-base problem. Maybe it's an electrolyte problem. Maybe it's a drug toxicity problem. The etiologies are endless. But what happens is, is if you think about the impulses spreading down both sides of the AV node, if there's one side that has slowed conduction for any reason, the other side is going to continue its merry way down to the ventricles, but all the while come up retrogradely through the atria, or excuse me, through the AV node and head back up to the atria. And what that winds up doing is it winds up creating an AV nodal reentrant circuit where impulses very rapidly are going from the atria to the AV node and down to the ventricles and up to the atria and down to the ventricles and up to the atria through this reentrant pattern in the AV node. We know adenosine to be kind of like, everybody calls it a chemical valsalva. And so we can try valsalva maneuvers. Yes, indeed we can. But adenosine will act as a chemical valsalva. And what we're attempting to do with adenosine is to temporarily block that AV nodal reentrant circuit in order that something more normal takes over. You know, whenever you give adenosine, you kind of come to this realization pretty quickly how inversely related your vital signs are to your patients. 
because we know anybody that's given adenosine knows that one of the things that you see when you administer adenosine is you can see some nice big long pauses or you might see a nice big screen of asystole and you recognize pretty quickly how inversely related your heart rate is to your patient's. They go down to almost nothing and your heart rate goes up through the ceiling. It's kind of funny that way, isn't it? In critical care, you, me, all of us and our patients have like this vital sign relationship with one another that most commonly is inversely related. So we need to, in a patient that is responsive, we've got to tell the patient that they're going to feel like they're going to pass out. They're going to feel terrible, horrible. They're going to feel like they're going to pass out. Now, of course, we're not going to use words like terrible and horrible, but certainly we're going to tell the patient that they're going to feel like they're going to pass out. And the most important part of that sentence is to tell them it's temporary. It's only going to be a matter of seconds, seconds, and they'll feel better. Some other side effects of adenosine include shortness of breath as well as chest pain. And um, again, the, the biggest thing being seeing that, that big pause on the monitor, maybe some idioventricular beats, asystole, that can be kind of a hair-raising experience. So the initial dose, again, given very rapidly, six milligrams. Be careful, those of you that are kind of knee-jerk test takers, What's a knee-jerk test taker? Somebody that reads the question, and then as they scan down the answers, they see six milligrams, and boom, they choose it right away. Well, read all the answers, guys, because I can tell you that if they test you on adenosine, which I bet they will, there'll be an option there that says six milligrams slow IV push, or over a minute or something like that. You know those are wrong, but all of the answers start with six milligrams. So be sure and read not only the question carefully, but read over the answer very carefully as well. Also, our last antiarrhythmic in this other class is digitalis. Uh, Digitalis, you don't see it used so much anymore. However, it does have antiarrhythmic properties. It slows conduction through the AV node, and therefore that's why we see that when patients are on digitalis, their PR interval just is normally prolonged. That's called a dig effect. We expect to see that. It doesn't mean that they're dig toxic. We also see in looking at their ST and T, we see a ladle-like effect. You know, when you think about serving soup and you think about a soup ladle, um, just think about, you know, the R wave coming down as the handle of the ladle and then think about the ST and T as actually being the scoop of the ladle. And so that actually is a dig effect as well. Doesn't mean that the patient is dig toxic. One of the downfalls of dig is it's slow, Right. Um, It takes a while to work and really to get the most bang for your buck, the patient needs to be digitalized. Well, everybody, this is the end of episode number five, our talk on antiarrhythmic medications. Please subscribe 
and come and visit me on my website. My website is called khoppypresents.com. If you head over to my website, there will be a place where you can sign up to receive email notification of upcoming episodes. There's also a schedule of podcast episodes to come for the CCRN and also brain teasers. There, I am going to be putting brain teasers for the episodes on my website as well so that you can click on brain teasers and you can complete a crossword puzzle or a fill in the blank related to the content in each episode. So thank you once again for joining me today and please remember to subscribe and check out my website and I look forward to seeing you in future episodes. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.